HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Museum of Food and Drink, sparking curiosity about food with exhibits you can eat. For more information, visit mofad.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, this is your host, Dana Cowan. Welcome to today's episode of Speaking Broadly, where amazing women share their stories of their hard-won success. Today I'm going to start off in a slightly different way, because I'm going to tell you about my week in food. Just the highlights, just some of the extraordinary things that I've eaten, because I really wanted to share them. I had a dinner party this week, and I wanted something really special for dessert. And I saw online that Fanny Gerson from Doe had a chocolate donut festival going on on Saturday and Sunday. Donut, chocolate, I love both of these things. And so I called Fanny up, and I I love getting ahead of the game. I wanted to have these donuts before that festival. I said, like, will you indulge me? Can I pick up some of those donuts and share them with my guests? Fanny, being the amazing person she is, said yes. So imagine it is torrentially pouring on Friday, I've got the umbrella. I'd gone to pick up wine. I'd picked up other, I'd picked up cheese. I was burdened, but off I went to dough like a little drowned rat. And there behind the glass was Fanny in flour and chocolate. And she came out and gave me a box filled with donuts that were shiny with Kaibo chocolate and little toppings. One of them was roasted banana. Another was vanilla espresso. Another was a tropical fruit flavor. And I picked them up and protected them like the small, delicious treats that they were and brought them home. And it took everything to wait till the end because wouldn't donuts be an amazing way to start a party? But we ended with these beautiful dough donuts. So 
check out dough if you haven't been by. All of their donuts are amazing. Fanny, for this event, instead of just changing out a couple of donuts, she changed out her entire shop. Fanny's also a member of the uh, Speaking Broadly Food Hall of Dames. I know why now. This was really an inspiration. Also this past week, we had the opening of Chef's Club Counter. I had been the creative director at Chef's Club for a year, so seeing this open was just incredibly exciting to me. It's on the corner of Spring and Lafayette, and there you can have a menu of great dishes from great chefs, like a burger from Jean-Georges von Gerichten. You also can have the infamous egg slut. I assume that I'm not introducing you to the idea of egg slut. It is a mega hit in L.A. from Alvin Kayan, and he is a just a, a brilliant culinary brain that came up with an egg dish to end all egg dishes. So I've invited Alvin to join us today to tell us a little bit about how you end up with this delicious, creamy, eggy deliciousness between two buns. Alvin, are you there? I'm here. Hi there. Okay. Hi, how are you? I'm, I'm so good. I'm so happy to have you on the line. Um, I wanted that egg slut for Chef's Cup counter, Stefan DeBotz, the president. It was something that he was dreaming about, and I wanted to make his dream come true. And you were a little hard to chase down. But once we got, yeah. <laughs> once we got you, wow, you put your entire heart and soul into the Chef's Cup counter egg slot. I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, you, you're, it's your first time you're going to have egg slot in New York. And right. wh- what is it that when you're thinking, like, what is the essence of a slut um, that you're going to bring that to New York? Like, to you, what is the essence of this egg sandwich that you've created? Well, I think that, that you know, it originally started from visiting my family in New Jersey, uh, Jersey City every summer, and uh, we would skate to the pass and take the pass over to uh, World Trade Center. And then every, every morning we would go up the stairs and there'd be a booth with the egg and cheese sandwich that we would always get with ketchup. Yeah, that and was before was, sriracha, and, right? <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, because usually it's like ketchup with pepper um, on a Kaiser roll. That's what we would get every morning when I was a kid uh, during the summers. And that was really like where my inspiration for eggs came from was I loved, that was my favorite kind of breakfast, like eggs in toast and just eat it and then go and do your thing for the rest of the day. <laughs> and so when you guys sought me out and I decided to come to New York and, and, and do this, this residency, I was going to give it my all because this is a new, New York is a egg, sandwich city you're right about that do do you have a favorite new york egg sandwich just out of curiosity let's say it one more time do you have a favorite new york egg sandwich oh my gosh you know what it's now become for well for me uh it's like a russ and daughter's cafe uh bagel with an egg in it 
Okay. Sorry. So um, you were saying black, black seed has a good one too. <laughs> right. I guess that that could be a long list. So you were right. when you were thinking about coming to New York and bringing Exit to, to New York. Um, what was your inspiration for the Soho Salmon? Uh, definitely Rustin Daughters. But like the like the last few years after winning Rising Star Chef uh, in 2014, I was invited. I've been getting invited to ICC in Brooklyn every year. And I usually stay um, anywhere around Russ and Daughters because I love it so much, <laughs> and I eat it. I eat it every morning. Um, and so when I when I decided to do a breakfast sandwich for Chef Chef Counter, I said it had to be smoked salmon because anyone can get a bacon, egg, and cheese on a roll and a bodega. So let's try to do a, a, a smoked salmon sandwich as an homage to the Lower East Side in Soho. So I did like 15 different variations of it. One with scrambled eggs, one with poached eggs, one one with over easy eggs. And uh, I finally decided to do one with formage blanc, uh, pickled mustard seeds and and relish. And it came out really, really good. That is so indulgent. I actually saw you this morning and I was eating that and it, it is so luscious. Like the smoked salmon is so silky, but those mustard seeds have that perfect little pop, and um, and the bun is very special. Can you tell us about the bun and how important is a bun to an egg sandwich? I think I think in any sandwich that is probably the X factor because the like I think that like you can fill anything with with a sandwich, but if the bread is stale or cold or whatever, it could totally ruin the situation. And so when when I came to the land of amazing bread, I had <laughs> 15 different um, bakeries, Tomcat, Sullivan, uh, Pond d'Avignon. Um, we had a bunch of different kinds of bakers uh, give us buns, and I fell in love with one, which is a pandemie by uh, Eric Kaiser, and I had to, I had to go with it. It was so good. And what made it the the right bun for you? Uh, it, it reminded me of like the you know Japanese uh, rolls you would buy at like the Asian bakery. Yep. And when I was a kid, like my you know my mom, she would go to like the Asian grocery store, and there's always an Asian bakery inside the grocery store. So that bread reminded me of the bread I grew up eating at home. Wow, so, so this like, is real- I, I have to do this. It's not the traditional brioche that we use in LA. Be- because it was a one and one of a kind situation, I had to do it. I love that the uh, sandwich that you've made is so nostalgic for you and yet so completely reinvented for today's New Yorker. Uh, right. Well, well, thanks, Alvin. It was really fantastic to have those egg sandwiches. I'm so glad you made that a reality for Chef's Club Counter. And you guys, you have to go to Chef's Club Counter and have Alvin's incredible dishes and the rest of the chefs as well. And Alvin, I'm going to be back. I'm going to see you soon. Th- thanks, for, thanks for joining me. Thank you. And now I am delighted to introduce today's guest. She is someone who has successfully found a way to leave what I imagine was rather a tedious corporate law job and land in the exciting world of 
restaurants and hospitality, and yet still use her degree. This is the story of career transition gone right. My guest is Jasmine Moy. Jasmine, thank you so much for joining me today. Of course. Thanks for having me. So I need to start with how did, once you realized you made a mistake becoming a corporate lawyer, like you felt it was a mistake, right? Uh, yeah, I did. <laughs> okay. I did. I just wanted, I don't want to make any assumptions here. Um, <laughs> how did you go about finding your way out? Uh, I have to tell you, it was, it was, it was not easy and it was not, it took a long time. Uh, actually I, I got out of law school and, and I had borrowed money to pay for law school and, you know, about $50,000 a year. So I was, I was in the whole, you know, solid six figures and, uh, you know, basically took the first high paying job that was offered to me. Uh, and that was in corporate litigation. Uh, and for a while I thought, Oh, you know, this is, this is the thing, you know, a lot of people are doing these, these jobs. It's, it's fine. Uh, but at the same time I was working, you know, a hundred hours a week, uh, literally I was working six and seven days a week. Uh, I would, you know, was going weeks and weeks without seeing friends, um, obviously had no love life to speak of whatsoever. Uh, and, and I think, you know, and I did this for, for, for several years, you know, five, six, seven years. And and that is a, that's not a short commitment to paying off debt and exactly. And, 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 uh, you know, I, I'm very debt averse. You know, I, I grew up in a in a very solidly middle middle you know income household, but making ends meet from my mother, who's a single mother, was was always difficult. So there was something very intoxicating about that kind of money. Uh, but then I turned thirty, and something about that, I, I just thirty is not even old. But th- th- that was the point at which I said, "Life is too short for this. Uh, I can't be doing this anymore." And I was, I was, I was very depressed as well. Um, but There's it's something about artificial mm-hmm. landmarks that mm-hmm. actually can be very helpful. You can <laughs> yeah. set them for yourself, or they come upon you, yeah. and it helps you sort of switch into a different mode and think. Ah, this is the time. Yeah, and I uh, and I just didn't know what to do, and and and, and it it is hard for lawyers to switch tacks. Um, there are sort of set, set tracks that people are on. And in the corporate world, it is very established and everybody's basically paid in step with each other. And there's, there is a, a formulaic path that all, you know, big firm lawyers have and that they take. And so that's all I knew. Is there a reason for that? Because so many businesses actually aren't so much like that. Um, you, you know what? I'm sure that there is a reason and I don't exactly know what it is, but I mean, I do know that, that, uh, once upon a time it was very competitive for law firms uh, to get the best students out of law school. Um, and then they basically like a monopoly, they sort of agreed to just set a price so that oh. some firms couldn't, I guess, un- unfairly, oh, basically it was, it was, it started to become a race to the top and firms were offering more and more and more money to get the, the to the right people. Um, so, I mean, I think this, this, this stuff is probably happening, you know, in the, in the tech world now. Uh, but, but um, you know, so I was on this path and it was the only, the only path that I sort of knew. And uh, I was, I was had started doing some food writing on the side just as something 
that uh, I could do that made me feel good about my life, basically. And how did you choose food writing of all the things that you could do as your secondary sort of escape hatch? Um, the idea was actually to, to be a travel writer. I wanted to quit. I had fantasies of quitting my job and traveling the world and, and writing about it and making money and and sustaining myself that way. And I took this travel writing class at NYU with a man named David Farley, who was on staff at a far magazine, which is like the most beautiful travel mag ever. And, uh, and he, it was a very practical class. And he was like, this is how you pitch a story. And I said, Oh, I think I could do that. And, and the next week I had pitched something to the wall street journal that they bought. And, and I thought, Oh, all right, this is, this is a thing I can do this. Uh, so I was doing some food writing and I had always loved restaurants and had always worked in restaurants and I'm also a terrible cook. So I was eating out constantly anyways. And I had all this money. So, I mean, I was like a regular, like Maria, which is a ridiculous place to be a regular (laughs) at, at the first place. And, um, and, uh, so, so I think, you know, I was meeting a lot of friends in the, in the restaurant world and, and Gabe Stolman was like, you know, he's like, you're a lawyer. And he said, I, you know, you should meet my lawyers. So um, just explain who Gabe Stolman is. Gabe Stolman owns uh, all of the great West Village restaurants, Fedora and Joseph Leonard and Jeffrey's, um, you know, the Mon Mart, which I loved so much, uh, when Tenho was there, um, and uh, so, you know, he, he had a, he said, you know, my lawyers basically only do only represent restaurants. You should meet with them. So that is how that seed was, was planted, basically. And I thought, well, you know, this actually is a perfect marriage of my interests. And I had no idea that this was even a thing. But now, <laughs> but now I want it. You know, now I, now I want it. So, And it seemed like you were actually quite a successful writer. Going back, the, your clips are still online. Yeah. <laughs> um, I can see the travel dream. You managed to do some travel and, um, you know, lots of food writing. I did. I did. I mean, I did not quit my job to travel the world necessarily, uh, but it, 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 was, it, was the, it was the thing that I needed to get me to the next place, whether I realized it or not. Um, so. And so how did you break into this thing that is restaurant lawyering that you didn't even know existed. Um, well, so yeah, I mean, you know, the, I, I went and met with, with Gabe's lawyers and I was a a litigator. I mean, I didn't know anything about contracts necessarily. I mean, you, as a law student, you learn certain things, but I had no real, real practical experience in it. So my, my sales pitch was sort of, Hey, if I know a lot of people, if you hire me, I'll, I'll bring in business. And um, so this this initial first firm had said, oh, you know, we're not idiots. If you can bring a business, we're going to hire you. <laughs> and uh, they said, send us some clients first. And I did that. And um, and so I, you know, I called this meeting thinking I was going to get this job offer from them. And I sit down and the first thing they say is, well, you know, thanks for those clients. Uh but we don't have enough work to hire somebody full time. So maybe you'd like to be a marketing intern for us and like and write an and write a newsletter for our firm. They uh, probably thought you were doing a favor. They were doing you a favor think, tossing you work and you're like you have just insulted me. I think that they did think that that was a favor to me. Um and it was incredibly insulting. And um so obviously that was not a uh, you know that was an offer I basically gave the middle finger to and I was in New Orleans. But wait. Yeah. Did they take those clients? So you brought them clients, did they? I did bring them clients and they t- then they took them, although some of them I took 
back with me when I settled somewhere. So I'm in New Orleans and I'm talking to my friend Emery, who who is uh, who works for John Besh, who's you know the a, a very big big chef down in New Orleans and and has many restaurants. And and I said, oh, can you believe this? These these jerks! Like I can't, I can't even believe it. And she said, you know, Jasmine. She's like, I had um, you know, I just actually had a, a phone call with a guy named Phil Calicchio. He's Tom's cousin. He seemed like you know a really nice guy. I'm going to connect you both. And uh, it's so funny because I emailed Phil and he said, yeah, let's meet. He said, in fact, do you want to do you want to help me out? I've got this show this Heritage Radio Network show. Um, Why don't we meet there? You can be my guest. You can talk about food writing. So I actually met Phil here in in this room for the very first time as like a guest on his radio show that he had um, back in the day, which is crazy. Just does come full circle, doesn't it? (laughs) It's so it's yeah. I I actually didn't realize that until it was coming out of my mouth that 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 is actually how we met and um, and we we hit it off. You know, I think our personalities meshed well together and and he had a lot of really big great clients and had had a hospitality kind of section of his business for a long time um and I worked for him for several years uh but but while I was working for him I was also getting some of my clients you know a lot of Phil's clients were very established you know very you know world-renowned chefs and then I a lot of my people were kind of younger and scrappier um you know, more diverse, doing doing a lot of really really random stuff and bootstrapping it, and uh, and I had enough of those clients eventually to to kind of hang my own shingle. So w- within the last year, um, I've I've sort of brought my business out and into the world uh, un- under my own law firm. Yeah, congratulations, thank you on that. <laughs> Was it hard growing these? business relationships within the umbrella of a larger larger group um you know it it uh i we phil and i had a lot of conversations initially about that you know we didn't want there to be conflict we didn't want to feel like we were competing with each other but it just so happened that you know the kind of work he was doing was 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 you know, a lot of hotel work and big kind of corporate work and a lot of consulting and licensing deals. Um, and, and he, you know, and that's, you know, with, which much, with much larger clients and he's kind of beyond, um, the, the wanting to be the, the, the person who answers all the frantic, you know, fr- frantic panicked phone calls from the people who are not sure what they're doing. And so it kind of, the, the work divided itself because I was the one who was more available and happier to take <laughs> all of these random calls and happier to be there at all hours of the day answering the silly questions right. um, that were sort of like below Phil's pay grade. So the work kind of divided itself. Um, you know, I was, I was a younger person to handle a lot more of the more high maintenance, I think, folks. Right. I'm just trying to think from both your side and his uh-huh. side, you know, the pitfalls of entering that kind of relationship and how you protect yourself either from doing a lot of work where, you know, you're essentially doing all the work, mm-hmm. but you're in someone else's company. And for them, someone's growing all this business and then they can leave. Like it seems on both sides, it's a little, you know, potentially tricky. So I'm thinking, is this a way you would recommend other people sort of grow their business or were there um, sort of flags like, no, you're hearing my story, but don't do what I did. Uh, No, I think, I think the path that I took, I mean, if, if you want to go out on your own, I think that that is a very uh, 
it's it's pretty standard, I think, for lawyers to only go on their own when they have a couple of flagship clients or have enough work clients that, 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 you know, if they started their own firm would, would come with them and, um, could sustain a practice. So I think my path was actually once, I think my, that path was actually fairly traditional. So if you talk, I mean, if you, even if you talk to a tax lawyer or a bankruptcy lawyer who did their own thing, usually they were under the umbrella of a, of a larger firm and had a couple of clients who were their clients who they were doing all of the work for, who then they knew if they started their own business um, would continue to be their clients. So that actually, I think, was a very traditional path as far as the lawyer, the lawyering is concerned. Yeah. And did you have a big learning curve going from being a litigator to oh, sure. this restaurant world? And how did you get up to speed? Like, what were the steps you took? Um, you know, again, you know, Phil was a very busy guy. So it it was, um, I think I was a little tossed in the deep end and he would just, you know, throw documents at me and say, make, make of it what you will and, and take a look at it and send me your notes. And then he would look at it and he'd say, listen, I would have done this or I would have done that. Or, you know, this is okay. Or, you know, I hadn't really thought of, of doing it that way, but that works for me. Um, so it was, it was a lot of, you know, me just doing it and, and, and then, you know, getting feedback from him. Although, you know, anybody who's been in sort of high level negotiations or has, in, you know, worked on projects, know that the the document goes through, you know, 15, 20 different edits. So there are a lot of different chances to, to get all of the things that you need to get. Um, it's, it's not something that has to be done perfectly the first round. Um, so there is, there is a little, it, there's a lot of flexibility, I think, uh, in, in finding your footing in, in a certain document. And the, as a negotiation happens, terms change and, 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 and whatnot. So, so it, so it ended up, you know, it, it was a perfectly, while I was always stressed out about whether I was doing the right thing. Um, I, I, I think it was a, a perfect way to get my footing, uh, in retrospect. Yeah. <laughs> so here we have an example of a, a career change where being thrown in the deep end to learn something new was not daunting. And there was a really solid way to, oh, I mean, it was super learn. daunting. <laughs> super daunting <laughs> to learn. Well, you but you you learned as you flew. Um, with that great thought, we're going to take a commercial break and um, be back afterwards to hear how lawyers protect those chefs and what chefs really expect from lawyers. Hi, I'm Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network. We all know and love Chinese takeout dishes like General Tso's chicken and egg rolls. But here's the thing. Even though we call it Chinese food, it's not like the food you'd find in China. What's the story behind this cuisine? And how did it become so popular that you can find a Chinese-American restaurant in nearly every town in the country? 
The answers may surprise you. Visit the Museum of Food and Drink in Brooklyn and see our newest exhibition, Chow, Making the Chinese American Restaurant. Chow engages visitors with compelling accounts of how Chinese immigrants overcame racism and created Chinese American cuisine. Discover the science behind the flavors of your favorite takeout dishes, feast on rotating tastings developed by the country's most talented Chinese American chefs, and try your hand at writing your own fortune, which will be baked into actual cookies by a 1,500-pound fortune cookie machine. What better way to learn, connect, and eat? You can visit Chow at the Museum of Food and Drink on Fridays through Sundays from noon to 6. Tickets and more information can be found at mofad.org. Hey, like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. Hello, it's Dana Cowan, and you're back with Speaking Broadly, and my guest, Jasmine Moy. Jasmine, a lot of chefs don't think they need lawyers, right? Lawyers, you have to pay them, <laughs> they're expensive, mm-hmm. like... What do I need? I'm going to have this great relationship with my investor. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you get chefs to understand the value that you bring, and what is that value? Um, it's very difficult, and I and I I feel like uh, I basically have to to scare them into it. And uh, we were sort of discussing this, um, but before the show started, but there's it's people will come to me and they'll say, Oh, I've got first, these are creative people. So they just want to do what they want to do. They just want to cook. And then, um, somebody shows up with a lot of money. That's in very, that's very intoxicating. And the relationship is very rosy and, and, you know, they've gone out, they've had some drinks, they get along. And then they think that this is it. And then I'm the one sitting there saying, all right, this sounds great, but let me, let me ask, questions about about well what happens if if this happens and what happens if that happens and and you you're know, like the queen of what if who's who yeah and it, you know i think a lawyer's job is really anticipating all of the worst case scenarios and there are a lot of worst case scenarios and and business partnerships are like marriages so i'm always i'm always saying this is this is a marriage let's <laughs> let this, this you know your partnership agreement is your prenup um you're only going to look at it when when things get Bad, but let's make sure that everything in this document covers all of the different ways that things can can get bad. So and tell me, give me some examples because it it must be um, horrible to watch it happen. Happy to be able to prevent it, but what is the worst case that you've seen? I mean, I think I think the the, the most regular issues are are both the creative person not necessarily respecting the dollar or not understanding how to take care of sort of the financial aspect of this business. Um, and then in the, so have you, like, do you have examples or you're just, you're sure. I mean, it's, it, it's, you know, it, it's, it, it plays out the same way time and time again. So it's, it's, it's the investor saying, um, I'm, I'm going to give you this money. The chef saying, I'm going to open this great restaurant, but then, 
you know, the, the chef not being able to control food costs or, you know, the front, the, the labor costs become out of control. And then all of a sudden the restaurant's not making the kind of profit that the investor thought that they were going to get. And then the investor wants to get involved and they want to start micromanaging and nitpicking. And they're calling the chef complaining about how much the chef spent on the tomatoes. And then the chef says, I don't want to, this, this sucks for me. I'm now not able to do my job or not feel I'm now I'm feeling constrained or like oppressed and, and, and that devolves and then they stop being nice to each other and then they actually start hate actually hating each other but they are still stuck in the same bed with each other um and that happens i think a lot and and it's and a chef doesn't really necessarily always consider that that is 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 what it'll turn into but that is what it turns into time and time again or even there's a branding aspect you know the chef has built this brand uh and then if they don't discuss what happens to the name of the restaurant, if they ever want to part ways with the investor. And also, how do you part ways with the investor? How do you get out of this deal? Who who pays whom and, and how much? And um, it's there's a lot of really hard conversations that need that should happen before you get into these you know, relationships, but a lot of times it's hard to convince people that it's worth spending a lot of money up front, not even a lot, mm-hmm. saying a few grand mm-hmm. to get this done the right way. Versus how much it'll cost you to get out of this, especially if maybe at a certain point, you, you know, you're getting sued by the investor for, for not, uh, for, for being, you know, ir- irresponsible or for being a bad, you know, fiduciary to this company. And, uh, you know, that could cost people tens of thousands of dollars, if, if not exceptionally more than that in, in, in the end. So, I, I mean, I think part of my job is really to scare people into understanding uh all all of the ways that that this could cost them more money if they don't put in the effort to hire someone to to do the work for you at the be- at the beginning. So how important is it in doing your job well to have I think you were a waitress at some point like Oh yeah, you, all through high school, all through college, all through law school like waitress. Yeah. <laughs> so how important was that? Like that just knowing the restaurants inside and out does that does that help you? Does that give you more credibility? Did that make it easier to become a restaurant lawyer? Like if I'm thinking of those people out there like, oh my God, restaurant law, that sounds so good. I can't wait to switch my corporate job to do this one. Um, <laughs> I um, uh, I don't know how imperative it, it was um, that I, you know, had worked in restaurants for as long as I did. But I do think that it is, it, that it illustrates to my clients that I have a real passion for what they're doing. You know, I don't consider them just another business or just another client. I'm, I'm really, truly, I call myself like a mother hen and, and they're all my little chickens. You know, they're, uh, I'm very deeply emotionally invested in, in the work that my clients are doing sometimes too much. You know, sometimes I have stress dreams about a certain client who's trying to raise money to build this restaurant or, you know, whose, whose free rent period is expiring and, and hope, you know, wondering what their pro forma is, is looking like. And, and, uh, um, so, but I mean, so it helps. It, it, I think it's more for for my sake that that I love the industry so much mm-hmm. um, because it makes the work almost a joy to do. Um, because because I really enjoy I enjoy my clients and I and I enjoy eating out at restaurants. You know, I I really have a, a passion for it. So it's I think it's more. I, I, it, it it now this is the kind of work that does feed my soul. Um, but I don't know much whether whether my my clients, uh, you know, are, are super impressed with the fact that I waited tables for as long as I waited tables. Uh, but you know, they, they do, they do, I think like that I, I have a, a pretty deep 
knowledge of, of how the restaurant works. And, you know, I hosted and I food ran and I expedited and I was doing a lot of really random, you know, jobs besides serving as well. So, so, you know, that may come in more handy than I, than I give it credit for, but, um, I think they would much rather that I just be a, the best lawyer <laughs> versus having to, you know, a, a, I think a lot of experience in, in the space anyway. A deep understanding yeah. of how to, how to balance. Sure. Trends. Yeah. <laughs> and not forget the table nine one of their one or five minutes ago. <laughs> Although I do think those waitressing skills, you know, it requires memory, it requires speed, it requires hospitality. Like, there's, those are good skills. Sure. In any case. <laughs> so um, for career changers and transitioners, what's mm-hmm. your recommendation to them? Like, you know, um, you tried to build a, a second career, which turned out to be writing, which then was the link to what you yeah. ended up doing sort of randomly. Um, but what's your recommendation to people who are stuck in a job? Um, they know they don't want to do this forever, but they have a deep skill. Um, I mean, I think first and foremost, uh, that you have to find something that you're passionate about because I, I think if you're doing something that you, you, you love, it ceases to feel like work. And I don't mean, I mean, I say that and that sounds so cheesy. Um, I actually, you know, believe it. I, although that being said, you know, when I'm on page 75 of a, you know, a 100 page lease, I will say it's a slog and that does feel like work. Um, but it's, it's, um, you know, I look forward to starting my day in a way that I, for many, many years did not. So, but I, I mean, I, I think finding the thing that you're passionate about is, is a hard thing to do. I think a lot of, I talk to a, a lot of people who don't know what that is. And so I consider myself very lucky for having known that or for having even been able to pinpoint that before I went and searched for it. So, I mean, I think it's, it's a matter of saying, okay, this is what I'm passionate about. These are what my skills are. And then how do I marry those? And, uh, but even figuring out what your skills are, you know, a lot of people think that they're good at certain things, but then they're not. And, and I, I came across something years ago that it was basically a survey that when you're trying to find, you know, this is before I, w- I was doing this work, I thought, I don't even know what, how do I even find out what kind of job to do? But it, it was a survey online that you send to your friends mm-hmm. and then your friends tell you what they think your strongest skills are because a lot of the time um, they would know better. Uh, and, and so there was a certain amount of that that I was starting to do as well when I was trying to figure out what I was doing with myself or, or how I needed to, what I wanted to do next. Cause all I knew was that I didn't want to keep doing what I was doing. I think that reaching out to people who know you very well and see your strengths more clearly than you can see them yourself is such a great starting point because just getting out of yourself, mm-hmm. uh, can be helpful and then bring other people on your journey. So you're not the only one trying to figure it out. But uh-huh. once you ask them, you know, it's incumbent upon them to carry you along, you know, yeah. like those people who carry the chairs yeah, exactly. <laughs> in ancient Egypt. Um, so at, at, in each speaking broadly, I ask people to read something that inspires them. Did you bring something that inspires you? I, I did. And I just want to, the caveat is that there's a little bit of swearing in here, so apologies for the, the sensitive ears. Um, but I'm I'm such a big fan of of Heather Haverlasky, who's an advice columnist. She was Ask Polly at at 
the all, which is one of my favorite websites. And now she's at New York magazine. Um, but there's, there's a, this was actually kind of a column about, uh, it was a rom- in response to a romantic query. Uh, but it's the kind of, I read it and I found myself like amening the entire time and <laughs> nodding my head. And, and, uh, and I actually have revisited this on, on many occasions. Um, so it's from a column about being that girl. Uh, she says, and look, once you make very clear, once you make a very clear distinction that this is what I want from a situation and that this, this is what I don't want, you can actually have faith that you will not suffer through bullshit again. You can trust yourself to walk away from bad situations. You can trust that you won't sell yourself short. You can trust yourself to give voice to your desires and to honor the deepest, truest parts of your soul. How fucking great is that to trust yourself to take care of yourself and honor your soul when you hit the point where you're not going to sell your fucking soul up the river? That's the beginning of true happiness. I've got a full body shudder. And (laughs) why does that particular thing speak to you? Um, I think, and I think maybe this is a problem that a lot of people have, but maybe even women in particular is, is, uh, putting up with things because they don't know that they deserve better. And that can be in a job or it can be in a relationship, um, with a romantic relationship or even a a platonic with friends, uh, that, that it's hard to ask for the things that you want that certain times I've felt like I didn't deserve X or I didn't deserve Y. Um, and, and, having the gumption and having the courage to say, well, I'm not going to put up with this. And, and I'm not, no, I'm not going to write your marketing newsletter and no, I'm not going to, you know, continue doing all the work while you get all the credit. And there's, there's a certain amount of, of that, that I have, that I have done. And I look back at myself and, and said, Oh, I wish that I'd really put my foot down. And I wish that I hadn't let myself do that for so long. And I don't want to be hard on myself now, but, uh, it's good to resolve to change that going forward. You know, there's nothing you can do to change the past, but you can say going forward, I'm not going to be that person. I'm not going to let people walk all over me. I'm not going to let people take advantage of me. I'm going to decide what I need and I'm going to ask for it. So it's such a, it's a great mantra for, as you say, all parts of life. (laughs) (laughs) Also on this show, I ask the guests to recommend someone for the food hall of dames, an incredible woman that, Whose, whose work you admire? This was such a hard question because I had so many people and I wanted to come in here with 20 names uh, because I just, I, I, there are so many people who are doing work that I respect. Um, but someone who has just, I'm so kind of floored and impressed by, uh, and, and I'm starting to feel like the world revolves around her, the, you know, every day that goes by. It's funny because we, we talked about her at breakfast, uh, not long ago, but, but Alice Elliott, who founded the Elliott group, um, she, and the Elliott group is, um, you know, they're a, a, a hospitality executive search firm. And then they also have a, a whole consulting arm of their business. Um, but she is such a powerhouse, and it's not just that she's good at what she's done and that she's built this sort of empire and she knows everybody, but she also spends a significant amount of her time um, trying to help other women, trying to help minorities, and really trying to help young people as well. She's such a booster to to young people in particular, and uh, 
I just, every time I go somewhere, I, I meet someone and she has done something for them. And I'm realizing that she, as an individual, has has probably done so much to help women uh, in the hospitality industry that, that she, and, and, and the work that she does is, is sort of invisible, but then it's not. Um, so she's someone that I, I just find really incredible. So Alice touches so many lives and some of them is because they hire her. And so many of them is because she's remarkably generous. She really, really is. (laughs) And we have a favorite five on speaking broadly. It, is usually usually tailored to someone's job, but I'm not going to ask you your favorite five lawyers. That would would be the most boring list in the history of lists. Or your favorite five deals that you've done. (laughs) But I know that you have a passion for going out to restaurants. Mm -hmm. And I know that everybody who eats out a lot, like I ordered chicken, I'm sure more than I should. Uh, What do you order more than you should? And give me your top five. Um, I really like... I mean, one of my favorite foods of all time is really a French fry. And I feel like I've had almost every French fry that the city has to offer. But I'm potatoes in general. I'm like a really big potato person. Um, So my top five, I guess, potatoes generally. uh, Ten, I I had to dream about these. But when Ten Ho was at Montmartre, that Gabe's Holman restaurant I mentioned, uh, he made really the best French fries I've ever had in my whole life. And he tossed them in this kind of savory, sweet concoction. And I don't know what was in it, but they were the best French fries I've ever had. And I think about them all the time. And sometimes I just send 10 notes saying, I really, (laughs) I'm so sad that I can't eat those fries anymore. Um, Backup fries, the fries at Extra Virgin with the gorgonzola fondue. Those are also really delicious. Mm. Um, I like the tater tots at Daddio's, uh, that bar in the West Village. They are fantastic. What makes Even them, when you are what makes them special? sober. Um, I think that they toss them in, in, in like an old bay, something, something. They're like a little spicy, uh, but they're really delicious. Um, the potatoes aligo, you know, the aligo is like the mashed potato that they whip with the cheese and it just kind of becomes this really decadent gooey. Um, I had some at, at Restaurant August, which is one of John Besh's places down in New Orleans. That was sort of life-changing for me. Um, the you can't cris- go wrong with all that cheese, really. The crispy layered potato at White Gold Butchers is really, really special. Um, and then this is my 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 lowbrow call, but the potato cakes at Arby's. Um, I you got to tell me more. I've never eaten it at Arby's. Oh my god! You know that there are actually two Arby's in in Manhattan, but it's I'm a Midwesterner and. I want to say, like, we had, my, I, I, my mother was a single mother. We, we ate a lot of fast food when I was growing up. Um, and Arby's was always one of my favorites. But basically, it's it's similar to, like, the hash brown at McDonald's. So it's kind of a, a caked, uh, minced potato that they just deep fry. But it, I, I have a real soft spot in my heart for the Arby's potato cake. So I, I see a trend here. Crispy. Yeah. Rich, <laughs> yes. decadent, fried, really, fried. yeah, right. crispy and fried synonyms here. Uh, well, that sounds that sounds like a, a great list. I, I love a good tater tot. I have to say, fries. I can kind of take or leave. I feel like I've had so many disappointing fries in my life that I am almost reluctant to to dive in. 
I don't know. Because I, 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 I care about every bite so much, and that may be too much. I mean, I even like the McDonald's French fries. So, I mean, I'm not super discriminating. I mean, McDonald's actually makes a really good French fry. They're so consistent in that way. But... Uh, a fry, I, I will eat all forms of fried potato, basically. I really can't go there with you with McDonald's. <laughs> but um, I want to thank you so much for coming on the, the show. If Thanks people want to follow your adventures, where can they find you? Um, I'm at restaurantlawyer.nyc uh, is my website. And email jasmine at, at restaurantlawyer.nyc or jasminemoy at on Twitter. Um, any of those places, if you want to get a hold of me or have business questions, I'm here and, and happy to chat. And you also do more than we talked a lot about the lawyering, but you also do consulting. You help people launch businesses. So yeah, I'm, I'm good for general business advice and business structure. And if you want to start a business, but aren't sure how come to me and, and we'll talk about it and I can make sure all of the, your ducks are in a row and all the pieces that you need are taken care of. I like that. You're a hen and you take care of ducks. Yeah. So that's good. <laughs> um, and you can find me at FW Scout and at Speaking Broadly. And I want to know if all of you listeners, are you guys Heritage Radio Network members yet? Because you should be. Membership not only supports the production and broadcast of this show, but it comes with perks. All current members are invited to our new monthly happy hour series, Books and Brews. I like that alliteration. Um, join us on April 12th at Three's Brewing at Franklin and Kent in Greenpoint with host of Eat Your Words, Kathy Irway, and her new book, The Food of Taiwan. Meet other members, snag a copy of The Food of Taiwan, and enjoy some beer from Heritage Radio Network business member Threes. Donate at heritageradionetwork.org backslash donate to get your exclusive invite. Because if you don't email, you can't be invited. That's it for the show today. I look forward to seeing all of you back next week, Wednesday at noon. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.